listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Psalms 121. I'm going to read this psalm because it's my personal favorite psalm, and we are, we're studying the books of the Old Testament considered to be the writings today, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the Book of Job are in this category called the writings, the poetry of the Old Testament. And this is just my favorite psalm of all time. It's Psalm 121, and uh, we're going to be flipping around a lot in the Bible today. So if you, if you uh, don't have a Bible in front of you, if you didn't bring your Bible, um, extra credit if you did bring your Bible. Anybody bring a Bible? Extra credit. Uh, I don't know where that applies to, but extra credit. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, find one. There's, there's some on the tables. There's some laying around. They have a mill sticker on them because we're going to be flipping around a lot. And I love it when you could see it with your own eyes on your own page. So Psalm 121, are you ready to hear from the word of God? Yes. All right. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And then verse two, it says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. God knows what you're doing. God knows God's with you. He's, he's not just hanging out somewhere else. He's, he's watching over you. Verse 5 says, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all your harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. It's a good word. It's a good promise to us, isn't it? All right, let's pray this morning. Jesus, we do praise you right now. We thank you for the writings of the Old Testament. God, as we, as we dig into your word, as we dig into the writings and look and study at some of the writings, God, would you make our hearts aware of the fact that, that so many people were honest before you, and you accredited them as righteous people because they were just honest before you. Even though some of their prayers seemed a little off, they were, they were honest before you. And they, they loved you and they, they said how they felt. And God, would you help us in our hearts to be honest before you. That we as your servants might come to you as we truly are. Come to you honestly so that you can help us, so that you can change us. So God, we give you our hearts. We give you our minds today. We love you. And everybody screamed. Amen. Um, my first ever mission trip was to Los Angeles. I was right out of high school. Uh, I was pretty young and uh, went to inner city Los Angeles on a mission trip. We took some sweet church vans down there and uh, we were with an organization that worked with the inner city homeless ministries. And uh, it was a hard, it was a full, I think it was a full five days, almost a full week with the travel. And it was a hard five days. We were just constantly doing something and ministering. We were giving out sandwiches in MacArthur Park, which is a park in downtown LA, just known for homeless and drug use and very sad um, individuals living their lives and in lots of need. And so we would give sandwiches in MacArthur Park. We'd help out at the uh, homeless shelters and serve soup and serve food. And then we'd get to sit down with the homeless people and eat with them and just learn and hear their stories and hear about their life. And uh, on, on Sunday, when Sunday rolled around, we went out into the inner city and just found homeless people uh, before church started. And we invited them to church. We we're like, hey, you want to come to church with us this morning? It's just down the road. You know, we can go to church together. And we, we heard a lot of excuses that morning. Like, oh, no, man, I don't go to church. Or no, man, I got things to do, some business to take care of. I don't know what kind of business that is, but all right. 
And uh, we heard, I just heard a lot of excuses that morning of why people didn't come to church. And as we were walking around, we kept walking past uh, this uh, kind of like a stairwell. It was in Skid Row, this area of L.A., this street called, I think it's named Skid Row. Anyways, lots of homeless people in this area of L.A. And we, look, we kept walking by the stairwell, and we thought, man, I think there's someone back there in this stairwell. And it was just... It was just really a gross stairwell that like it, it had honestly, it not, I, don't, I know you're, most of you are eating your breakfast right now, so I apologize, but it looked like some people had used this back stairwell as a bathroom and, and to get to the stairwell, you actually had to kind of step over something that looked like vomit and it was just, yuck, it was just gross. And I remember looking back in there and, and seeing someone, there was, a, there was a lady back in there and, and so we're like, well, let's, let's just go, let's invite her to church. Maybe she really needs it. And so we, we step over the, the grossness. We're, we're there in the stairwell, and we're like, hey, would you like to come to church with us? And she kind of like pokes up kind of out of these rags and this blanket. Uh, you could just smell. It was just gross. It was just someone that had been living in, um, maybe had nowhere else to go, just living in filth, literally. And, and so we asked her, would you like to come to church? And we had heard a lot of excuses that morning. We heard all kinds. But she said, I can't go to church because I have, n- I have n- nothing to wear all I have is this, that what I'm wearing. And, and of course, we said, you know, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. You can come to church, come to church as you are and, and come honestly before God. And what you're wearing is just okay. You can come with us to church. And, and I think, you know, we heard a lot of excuses, but she was legitimately concerned that maybe she wanted to go to church, but she didn't have the clothes to wear. And we said, come on, why don't you, why don't you come with us? And to my amazement, she stood up and said, okay, I'll, I'll come to church with you all. And, and so she came to church, and she sat with us in service. And uh, one of the girls actually on our mission trip, if you looked at her, you might judge her as this prissy little girl that all she cared about was makeup and boys. But uh, she, had a, she had a heart, a real servant's heart. And she sat with this woman the whole service and, and talked with her and ha- had her arm around her at one point when she, was, she started to cry. And what that woman, what the homeless woman did that day is something that I think very few of us ever dare to do in the spiritual realm. She came, bef- she came to church, symbolically coming before God as she was, honestly. Not, didn't have a chance to clean up, didn't have a chance to put on nice clothes. She came to God as she was. And if the writings of the Old Testament, I'll talk about what the writings are, but if the writings teach me anything about how to come before God, it's that we should come before God honestly and truthfully, and as we are, and let God deal with what we're going through. Let God deal with where we are at. So today we're talking about the writings, and the writings are the poetry, the songs, the Psalms, the Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, uh, the book of Job, all these books that compose the the, the writings of the Old Testament, and it's the Hebrew way of breaking up the Old Testament. This, this whole month we've been talking about the law was la- a couple weeks ago. Last week we talked about the history. This week we're talking about the writings, the Nevi'im, which the Hebrew categorization of the writings of the Old Testament. And then next time we're talking about the prophets. And so today, the writings. Sound like fun? Hopefully it will be. I'm going to adjust this microphone and then I'm going to give you some announcements. Talk amongst yourselves. It it just pinches the ear, you know? You don't understand what speakers have to go through. It just pinches. It like pinches the top. Hurts. It's okay, though. It's better than the ones that clip here because then I'm always talking and rubbing and falling off. All right. You okay? 
Okay, I'm okay now. So if you're newish, uh, one of the announcements is if you're newish, would you fill out one of these uh, Sunday school cards? Um, it just has some information on it. If you give it to the people as you leave at the back table there, they'll give you a free gift just for coming today. We'd love to, to meet you and, and have, your, have your card. So please do that. Another announcement is... Um, if you want to get more involved in the Mill Sunday School or the Mill on Friday nights, that's our main meeting, by the way, if you haven't been to the Mill on a Friday night. Uh, we have a leadership team, and we can give you a leadership application. You can fill it out. The process is quite easy, and the, uh, the um, commitment is as much as you want to give. If you want to serve every week, if you want to serve every other week, it's basically our service team is our leadership team. So it's always an open invitation if any of you are like, I want to get more connected. How do you become a leader? Do you have to do something great and be chosen? It's like, no. I mean, you're a leader because you fill out an application. You want to serve. You have a heart of a servant. And so if you want to serve, be on the leadership team. Those are your announcements. Would you like to get into the writings this morning? All right, turn to the book of Proverbs. And you could turn to chapter one of Proverbs. And, pl- and please turn there. As I said, we're going to be skipping around a lot today and looking at uh, all the books that are considered the writings of the Old Testament. I love it when I really love it when people bring their own Bible and they have maybe a pen in hand. And I'm a big fan of writing in my Bible because, you know, I could write something in my Bible and then I'll come back to it later and learn something from what I wrote before, my own personal notes or what I thought was cool. If I underlined something, I'd be like, man, that is cool. I underlined it. It must be really cool. <clears throat> and so the, the book of Proverbs, as we talk about the writings, uh, the book of Proverbs is compiled, compiled by Solomon. Remember David's son, King Solomon? He wrote a bunch of Proverbs. We think that he also probably compiled a lot of Proverbs from other, uh, other writings and other cool things that were said. Um, things like, uh, you know, we would kind of compare, if you were like talking to a non-Christian, like, what's this book of Proverbs about? You might say, man, it's like a whole bunch of fortune cookies. But there, there's no cookie. It's just fortune. But the fortunes aren't like weird things that are going to come true. It's like truth about God and about knowledge. And so um, I think it would be cool if we like cut out little pieces of Proverbs and then put them in fortune cookies and called them like Christian proverbial cookies. That would be sweet. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you know, there's 31 Proverbs. And they all, I mean, they're, a lot of them are just like one-liners. Like, like um, you know, the... the wisdom is is gotten by this but a fool says this and there's just a lot of one-liners a lot of really good information uh, a lot of good practical information about like how to be accurate how to be wise in the marketplace or with your family or in training or about choosing what is right even if it's hard and uh there's 31 proverbs and i know a lot of people like billy graham if you want to do your devo like billy graham um you know who billy graham is right evangelist extraordinaire pretty cool dude he reads so if you want to be like billy graham he he says he reads a proverb every single day depending on what day it is so today's the 19th of april right so he would read Proverbs 19, or, yeah, it's the 19th of April. He would read Proverbs 19. I'm confusing myself up here. Um, and Proverbs, let me just read, because this introduction uh, says a lot about what's about to come. So Proverbs 1, verse 1, just says this. I'm, I'm going to read uh, a portion from every, every book of the, that composed the writings today. So uh, Proverbs 1, verse 1, starts off with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And these are for ta- obtaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for inquiring a discipline and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. 
and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings of the riddles of the wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so these books, these, the, this book in the writings of the Old Testament, Proverbs are very, some of them very poetic. Some of them are like one-liners that are obviously well thought out. You know, a statement of truth, how the wise become wiser and how the fools don't listen to wisdom. But if you want to obtain wisdom, listen and read and put into your heart these ideas that are in the Proverbs. So that's the Proverbs. Everybody okay with Proverbs so far? I'm gonna, what I'm going to do this, this Mill Sunday School is we're going to go over the six books that compose the writing and then talk about a bigger idea. So hang on tight. If you're taking notes, uh, there's probably not n- enough room to take notes on all these books, but you can try. You can pull out another piece of paper. But we just talked about Proverbs. Uh, the other book of the six writings is the book of Job. How many of you have read the book of Job? It's a really weird book, um, to be honest. I mean, we put it in the writings, in the category of the writings, because it's very poetic. It's kind of a story, but it's lots of, it's like lots of dialogue between Job, this character who I'll talk about in a minute, and some of his friends, these people that come to counsel him. And then at the end, God gets to speak. So it's all these different speakings um, and advice to and from Job. So turn to the book of Job, just because um, it's cool to turn to books. You could turn to maybe Job chapter 38. I'm going to read that in just a second. But the book of Job starts as a story. And to un- kind of understand the whole book of Job, you have to understand the context of what's happening. Because Job is a righteous dude. Righteous meaning good. He's a man of God. He's a man of integrity. And he blesses the Lord. And there's this conversation in the beginning of the book of Job. You could read it. It's fascinating. Satan comes to God and says, uh, God and Satan are having a conversation. And God says, look at my servant Job, how righteous he is. And Satan says, he's only righteous because you're treating him well. He's only righteous because you've given him uh, riches and he's wealthy and he has all this stuff. And so God gives Satan permission to, to send Job's life into turmoil. And, and it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to think about like, okay, God just gave permission to Satan, to, for Satan to kind of destroy Job's life. But, and so what happens is Job loses uh, his house. He loses his wealth. He actually loses his family and he gets really sick and he has boils on his skin and uh, he's sitting there. Um, scra- it says he's sitting there scraping at his wounds like he has these boils on his skin and he's scraping his boils with this piece of broken pottery Sounds like a good time, right? And then get this, his wife comes up to him and encourages him. She says, are you ready for this? She says, Job, curse God and die. It's like, man, what a, what a wealth of wisdom from Job's wife. Uh, I mean, just think about the, the, I mean, the horror, the turmoil of, of, of all these events, losing family members, losing all your wealth, having boils, scraping your skin, being covered in ashes, and your wife says, curse God and die. And so, it sounds like a great time, and it really, <laughs> really is not, obviously. And, and so Job begins to speak about his despair, and then he has a series of three friends, and then a fourth friend come to him and talk to him about um, the way things are. And what you get a sense of in the book of Job, the book of Job is long, by the way, it's quite a few chapters, um, you get a sense of these friends coming up to him and saying, I know God. God's my homeboy. I know exactly how he works. He works like this. God is punishing you because you did something bad. Is that the true story? 
No, the true story is he was righteous and he was tested by Satan because God allowed it. And so these friends of his kind of all come up and say, man, I know how God works. I got, I got God all figured out. God works like this and like this. And they say very nice things. They say very kind of like lots of, um, you know, almost like poetical nice things. Like maybe like a Hallmark card, you know, they're like reading these nice little nice things to Job. Here he is sitting on the ground in ashes, pottery, scraping himself. And they come up and it's, you get this sense of pride that the friends are like, let me read you this wall, this Hallmark card. And cause I got God all figured out. And, and it, it fits in the writings of the old Testament cause it's very poetic and it's very, um, it's, it's very beautifully written. And Job talks to them, and what, what my, my, my study Bible says is that one of the main points of the book of Job is that um, even though Job comes to God, challenges God, talks almost with hatred towards God for what he has done, he's determined to speak honestly. So Job speaks honestly, and it says, whereas the counselors, on the other hand, mouthed many correct and often beautiful creeds, but without the living knowledge of the God that they claimed to honor. So here you get this picture of Job just being honest before God, and these friends of his just kind of saying what's right, reading Hallmark cards to Job. And then finally, at the end of the book, you get God speaking to Job. And it's it, it, you're finally like, wow, because everybody's Job and these friends are speaking about, well, God must be thinking this. God must be thinking that. Um, here's what God's thinking. Here's why God's doing this. And then finally, chapter 38, God speaks. Are you ready for this? So God speaks to Job and he says this. And you just get this picture of God is in control. Who are you but just a, a man, an individual? How can you possibly, especially speaking to the four friends, how could you possibly think you're, you're, you know me when I am unknowable. And so listen to what it says. Chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Everybody say, Oh, dang. <laughs> Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. You will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set or laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the seas behind the doors when it burst forth like a womb? When I made the clouds in its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set the doors and the bars in place? And so God just goes on and says, who do you think you are? Where were you when I created the world? I mean, how do you even begin to answer that? You're like, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you made me. I guess you created me. I guess you have all wisdom, God, that I can't possibly figure you out. And God goes on and on about his power, how he is sovereign, how he is in all control. And at the very end of the book of Job, it's after, as, after Job listens to what God has to say, um, verse six of verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 6, it says that Job finally repents. He despises himself, repents, and just says, God, I trust you. God, you are above all. Even though, you know, throughout the book of Job, we see Job being honest and saying, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. I don't like you right now. Is kind of the, the hint of what, you know, Job is trying to say. Like, he's in pain. Why is God doing this all? And God says, why? Because I'm God. I'm sovereign. I have all things under my control. And finally, Job um, repents 
and the epilogue is that Job gets everything back. He gets all his servants back. He gets his house back. He gets everything um, delivered back into him, his wealth, and, and, and the Lord begins to bless him again. And I think in that time of horrible turmoil, Job becomes closer with God, which is, I think, one of these points that I want to bring with the, with the writings is that people are honest before God in times of good, in times of bad, but they're communicating with God honestly. And that honest communication allows them to, to get closer to God. So that's the book of Job in a nutshell. You realize what we're doing here. We're covering a, a ton of scripture right now. We're covering six different books of the Old Testament, which is a lot. So are you still with me? Hey, hanging on. This is the Mill Sunday School. If it was like another church, I'd be like, man, you guys can't handle this. But this is the Mill Sunday School. You can handle it. I'm just kidding. Not really, but kind of. Turn to the book of Song of Songs. And this, the book of the Song of Songs. <laughs> I remember in high school when I first found this book, I was like reading my Bible, and I found this, this book, and I was like, what in the world is this book doing here? It's about like two people loving each other. What in the world? And, uh, and sometimes the Song of Songs, people just laugh at it, or it gets this kind of bad rap that it's, oh, it's this dirty book. It's a pornographic book of the Bible. It's a, it's a book that you shouldn't read. But it's in there, isn't it? The Song of Songs is in the Bible. The Song of Songs, it, and it really isn't that dirty. There's, there's a lot of like double talking. There's a lot of like analogies given. It's kind of like if you're watching a cartoon and there's jokes in there for the kids and then there's some jokes in there for the adults. That's what I kind of think the Song of Songs is like. Because if you read it, you're like, oh, gazelles and flowers, precious, lovely. But really, the gazelles, the flowers, they all have a representation. They're, honestly, they're, they're sexual representations of what's happening here. And I just think it's, to, to talk uh, about the, so- the Song of Songs, um, let's just first dive in and read one little section. And this kind of section represents, in my opinion, a lot of the Song of Songs, kind of wraps up. It says, what's the Song of Songs all about? Well, read Song of Psalms, chapter 2, are you there? It's kind of a hard book to find. It's after Ecclesiastes, after Proverbs. Then you have Song of Songs. Um, and it's Song of Songs 2, verse 7. And this is, this is the chorus that's repeated several times in the Song of Songs. It says, O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And then, and then she gets, it seems like this this beloved gets very excited and says, listen, exclamation, my lover, exclamation, look, exclamation. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, exclamation point. There he stands behind the wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. Everybody say, aww. Isn't it, I mean, it's, it's a very romantic book. And, and you might think, you know, sometimes you think, especially like our age, I'm married, so I'm like a little bit more mature than all of you. <laughs> Those of you that are laughing, laugh because you realize that I'm not that much more mature than any of you, if not less mature. But uh, so, so a lot of us, a lot of us, meaning you all, I'm married, uh, fall into the boat of being like in their 20s somewhere, trying, maybe trying to find 
uh, somebody to live life with and excited about the prospect of marriage or dating someone. And I think sometimes you can get almost like a bipolar idea that somehow like your church life and your God church life is separate from your romantic life. And you have all these romantic feelings and feelings of wanting to be with another person. And, and then you have, you know, your God time and your God church. And what the book of Song of Sol- Songs tells me is that God is very concerned with romance and with falling in love and with de- the process of dating and, 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 and just romance. And, and it's just, I remember first finding this book and just thinking, wow, you know, why, at first I was like, why is this book in here? Is it a part of the Apocrypha? What's the Apocrypha? And I thought, no, the, the book of the Song of Songs is in our canon of Scripture. And it is all about romance and these two people falling in love. And that is a part of, of this, this, the writings of, of Christians, of, of believers in the Old Testament, not Christian believers of God in the Old Testament, that come to God with romantic feelings. And here this book of the Bible is that is just concerned with romance. And what it says to me is, is, once again, that God is concerned with all our emotions, all of who we are, and bringing all of our prayers to God, all of who we are to him. And so that is the book of Song of Songs. You got it? Good. So that's an overview of Song of Songs. Uh, moving on. So Song of Songs, in some ways, is like the coolest, happiest, you know, romantic story in all of the Old Testament. And then you have uh, a book just several pages after it, right after the book of Jeremiah, called the Book of Lamentations, which is by far, in my opinion, the saddest book of the Bible. So Lamentations, right after, it's, it's, a, it's a small book, it's harder to find. It goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, then Lamentations, and it's before the book of Ezekiel. Turn to Lamentations. I'm actually going to read uh, chapter 4. So turn to Lamentations chapter 4. I'm going to read that in just a second after prefacing the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is very poetic. It's very uh, song-oriented. In fact, several times, I believe the author says, you know, here's our song. We're singing, and, and it's a sad song. It's an extremely sad, poetical book. You know, if you say you're lamenting something, what's that mean? Well, you're grieving it. You're, you're very sad. And so the, the book of Lamentations is, is written at the time in which, remember we went over that if you were here last time, we, went, we covered a whole array of the history of Israel. We found out that the Israelites were living and chilling out in Israel. Then along came the Assyrians and Babylonians, and they took the Israelites and wiped them out. They burned cities to the ground. They did horrible things. They took people into slavery. And we think that Jeremiah, one of the prophets, wrote the book of Lamentations uh, after the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And so here he is being captive. He's a slave now to these really bad people, and they do really bad things to him. And uh, Lamentations is a book that's very honest, and it's also very sad. I'm going to read you something else that's going to kind of ruin your breakfast. But I hoped to not just shock you with, with some of this writing in here, but to show you that, you know, if you think the Bible is just all happy, nice wordings and poems, it's not. It's, it's very serious. People come to God with where they're at. And, they, and a lot of times, they're not at a happy, nice little place in their life. They're at a very sad place in their life. And they bring that to God. And listen to this. This is just horrible. Uh, Lamentations 4, verse 9. It says that those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. 
So he's in this time where the Israelites, God-chosen people, had just been laid waste and captive by the Babylonians. And he says that those that were killed were better off because those that were wreaked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. And then it says this. It just shocked me. I remember the first time I read this. With their own hands, compassionate women, so Israelite women, have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. You see that? I mean, is, is that is that just an analogy or did that really happen? And I think, you know, from reading the horror stories of what happened to the Israelites, that's not just an analogy. That's a part of what happened in their history, that this famine and horrible things happened. And and then the author of this book prays uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 1. He prays, Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. And then he, he goes on to say, Our inheritance has been turned over to, to the foreigners. But this prayer, Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Let me ask you something. If, if someone really knows their theology and their Bible well, uh, there's a word called omniscient, right? You know what that word means? that God is omniscient. He knows everything, right? So our God knows everything that has happened, that will happen, that will come to happen, that, that God knows everything. Omniscient, he knows everything. Why would someone pray, remember, O Lord, what has happened to us? That's not theologically correct. Of course he will remember everything, right? Well, this person isn't concerned with good theology at this point. He's watching women cook their own children, and he's saying, God, I remember what, remember this. Remember what these horrible people made us come to. Remember what these hor- horrible people did to us and repay them. And of course God will, will remember. He remembers everything. But it's just, you see it here, a very honest prayer before God. Can you see that? A very honest, sad prayer. I think sometimes we feel as though we need to clean up before God. That you know, we need to put on a smile. Maybe, maybe a better example is maybe coming to church. Put on a happy face. Put on a smile. When, when that's not really how we're feeling, we kind of have to feel like we have to fake it. And uh, churches should be a one place. You know, before God in prayer should be a very safe place to not have to put on a fake smile if that's not how you're feeling, if you're going through something. Um, and, and the book of Lamentations shows me that. Do you see that in the book of Lamentations? Yeah, it's a, it's a sad, it's a something sad, but it's something that's clear to me. Look at the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and talk about um, some, some bad theology, if, if, if I could be so bold as to say that, and I'll explain that in a second. So Pro, it's, Ecclesiastes, another hard book to find because it's small, is right after the book of Proverbs. So it goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And it's right before the book of Song of Psalms, where you were, right before the book of Isaiah. And if you're turning there, specifically go to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> and let's just read it, because it has, uh, it has some implications. Raise your hand if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes. For some random reason, this was, I think this was the very first book of the Bible that I ever read. And it's just, it's a very confusing book. It's a very weird book. It's like a rantings of a man that is, a lot of people would honestly say it's the rantings of a man who's in a midlife crisis. And he's just like, everything is meaningless. You know, it's written by uh, Solomon, who had all wealth, 
all wisdom, all these riches, had all these uh, women serving him, and lots of wives, and he had everything under the sun, and yet he says this. Are you ready? Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, exclamation, says the teacher. Utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, returns to the north. Round and round it goes, everything on its course. And then he goes on to further, it's like everything is meaningless. And then he goes on to specifically say, wisdom's meaningless, pleasures are meaningless, toils are meaningless, everything is meaningless. And it's this guy that has all this money, has all this stuff, all these wives and relationships. And he says, everything is meaningless. I have it all and it's all meaningless. And there's some truth to that, right? Mo money, mo problems, right? I mean, there's some truth to like having everything and it's still not being enough for that. They're, they're, you know, it's all meaningless. But at the same time, is life really meaningless? I mean, from a biblical standpoint, reading the rest of the Bible in context, we could say, no, you know, Jesus came and died for our lives, and our lives are meaningful to him. And Paul, the apostle, talks about, you know, for instance, work, how we should work with our hands, work hard, and, and bless those, and serve those that are in need. And, and that's not meaningless, working hard, that's not meaningless. Jesus Christ giving his life for our life, that's not meaningless, right? And so in the greater context of the Bible, um, now, life isn't meaningless like this man is ranting about. But you know what I see this rant as? I see it as someone being very honest. Someone who's potentially about to commit suicide. Someone who's potentially bringing everything to God and saying, God, everything is meaningless. I'm so sad. I'm so uh, broken. I have it all, but it's, it's, it's meaningless before you. And it's like, um, you know the music style emo you thought emo started in the late 2000s with, with some bands uh, uh, in, the, in the Midwest. No, it started with Ecclesiastes and Solomon melodramatically talking about his emotions and meaningless and crying and having his hair to the side. I mean, isn't it? If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, hopefully I'm not being too bold too far from from that analogy, that this book is very emotional. It's very just complainy and, uh, you know, all these things. Oh, it's all just meaningless. It's all meaningless. We're so sad. It's so, everything's so sad. And, and there's, to, to wrap up kind of the point of why I brought this book up is this idea that, you know, it may not be the best theology that Solomon is, is writing um, because everything really isn't meaningless. There is meaning in life. There's meaning to Jesus and, and serving God. There's meaning in that. But he doesn't feel like there is. And he's bringing to God his true feelings. He's being honest before God. He's not saying like a Hallmark card kind of prayer that's nice and I love you, you love me. We're a happy family <laughs> with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. And that's not his prayer. It's everything is meaningless. Everything. I hate life. I hate everything. Everything's meaningless. And that's how he feels. That's what he's bringing to God. Can you see that here? So this is the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's look now at the largest book of the entire Bible, the book of Psalms. Maybe, maybe we're going to flip around quite a bit in the book of Psalms. Turn maybe the first one. Uh, the first psalm that we're going to read is actually the last psalm, Psalm 150. 
And this one, I mean, there's all types of emotions before God. <clears throat> there's all types of emotions in life. You know, there's, there's despair, there's hatred, but there's love and romance, and there's feeling good, and there's times of feeling bad. There's times of praising God, like, like Psalm 150. I mean, this is a legitimate prayer. This is the kind of happy prayer. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the mighty heavens. Verse 2, praise Him for the acts of His power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trump. It goes on to say, praise Him with the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine. Praise Him with dancing and strings and flutes and cymbals and resounding cymbals. Verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And that's a good psalm. Amen? I mean, praise the Lord. And, and many a times, you know, I come to church and this, that's the song. That's the psalm that's on my heart. Praise God. Yeah, I, I have what I, you know, God is pr- providing and, and I just feel like I need to praise him. But there's other times when I'm not feeling Psalm 150. I'm feeling other things. And all 150 of the psalms, uh, many of them of David, of other writers, uh, there's actually five books that compose these psalms. It seems like there's an array of emotions. And if all you think, maybe if you've never read through the psalms, which actually, it's the biggest book of the Bible. It takes a long time, especially Psalm 119, which me and my wife are reading through the Bible, and we're stuck on like one Psalm 119. We've been stuck on it for like a week now, week and a half. It's brutal. It's a really long psalm. Anyways, there's, uh, if you ever read through the psalms, you'll see an array of emotions. And if, if you've never read through the psalms, you might think that, oh, they're all just nice, like Psalm 150. They're all just praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. And then again, I say praise God, praise God. But that's, I mean, that's Psalm 150, and that's a good psalm. But that's not all the psalms. There's psalms like uh, turn to the psalms that are not nice. And so if you're taking notes, one of the psalms, uh, in the notes it says, prayers that are not nice. This would definitely fall into that category. Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a not nice prayer. It's not happy. This is a prayer that... Uh, Someone prayed during the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of Israel, the same thing when I talked about lamentations. This is around that same period of time uh, because Psalm 137 verse 8 says, O daughter of Babylon, so like the descendants of Babylon, Babylon the country, the nation, daughters of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done. So here's this, this is in the Bible now. We're reading the Bible, reading the psalm, reading the same book that says, praise God, praise God, praise God. But then you have this psalm. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you've done. And then it says this, who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Happy is someone who takes my enemy's child and kills them in a, in a horrible way. And this is a, this is a psalm of the Bible. This is a, a prayer. Happy is he who repays you for what you've done, and then specifically who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's, I mean, that's praying your hate, isn't it? That's like gritting your teeth and, and praying this prayer before God. You know, the, the number one subject in the psalms the subjects that's prayed the most about is, of course, God. God is the Lord, is referred to the most in the Psalms. But you know what the second is? So first there's God. He's the number one subject of the Psalms. Do you know what the second is? Enemies. 
enemies is the number two subject of the Psalms. And at many points, authors curse their enemies. Look, let me show you another one. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Psalm 109. Psalm 109, verse, I'm going to start in verse 18. So flip back a few pages to Psalm 109, starting in verse 8. This is a, a psalm of David, actually, cursing his enemies. And, uh, and, he, and listen to this curse. I mean, if someone was screaming this at someone else, you'd be like, dang. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God, asking God to curse his enemies, starting in verse 8. So Psalm 109, verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. This one applies today. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. My goodness. May his descendants be cut off. May their names be blotted out from one generation to the next. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered forever uh, before the Lord. And then it says this, may the sin of his mother never be blotted out. He just brought the moms to this curse. Are you kidding me? I mean, this was a prayer. David, the, the man after God's own heart, is praying this curse over his enemies. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May the sins always be remembered before the Lord. And it goes on to curse his enemies. And I remember reading some some lingo like this in uh, the Psalms a long time ago when I was reading through the Bible. And I remember thinking, man, this is this is what you should do when you don't like somebody. And just curse them. And so I remember uh, like driving in my car, someone would just like cut me off a little bit. And I would just start cursing them. May their tires blow up and they run into a wall and die. I really, I mean, I was like, I don't, I'm not even that mad at them. But I mean, if David does it, I could do it. And I got this idea that, you know, I just need to curse people and curse them. And yeah. And, and then I realized, you know, that's not the full picture of the Bible. The full picture of the Bible has some words of Jesus. And you can turn there if you want. But it's Matthew 5. Jesus specifically talks about cursing your enemies. Should you curse your enemies? Well, listen to what Jesus has to say. This is the full picture now. This is uh, Matthew 5, specifically verse 43. He talks about his enemies. You know what Jesus is going to say about enemies? He's going to say to love them. It's like, that's, it's like, man, why is David cursing them if we should be loving them? And I'm going to explain that in a second, but let me prove it to you. Jesus says in Matthew uh, 5, 43, you've heard it said, love your enemy. Uh, excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've heard it said. Must have been a saying. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you, that you might be sons of the Father in heaven. He causes his son, uh, the Son to rise on the good and evil, to send rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who loved you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? And it says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what does Jesus say to do to your enemies? Curse them and make their tires blow up if they cut you off? No, it says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, but bless them. And so you're like, whoa, wait a minute. So here we have David, King David, a man after God's own heart, cursing his enemies, but Jesus saying, don't curse your enemies. 
What's going on here? Should we be like David who gets to curse his enemies or should we be like Jesus? And Jesus says, don't curse your enemies. Bless your enemies. You know what I think? I think that that Psalm that we read, Psalm 109, for instance, and there's other Psalms like it, is not an example of what you're supposed to do. It's not an example of good theology. What I think it's an example of is someone praying honestly. Someone praying, God, I, I hate what, these, what this person has done to me. They bring their hate to God. They bring this curse. They're just praying out their hate. They're, bring, they're praying out a curse because they're praying to God. And I think if anyone should take our hate, it's God himself. It's like, uh, it's like show your true self to the doctor so that the doctor can make you healthy. Pray out your true feelings. Sometimes we feel, what the, what the Psalms do, what the writings of the Old Testament do for me is they show me an example of pray honestly before God. You don't have, your prayers don't have to be hallmark, pretty nice prayers before God, but you can pray what you're feeling. And if you're feeling good, if you're feeling like praise the Lord, then pray, praise the Lord. But if you're feeling horrible, if something bad has just happened, you don't have to just put on a face and say, praise the Lord. He is good all the time. That's not how you're feeling. Bring your true feelings to God and he will bring back to you where you should be at. He can take your hate. He can take where you're at and deal with you as you come to him as you truly are. I know that a lot of people, and maybe some of you know people in your life that maybe friends, maybe Christians that have were strong at one point in their walk with God and then maybe something bad happened to them and they gave up on the faith. I know of a few people I can name by name that that, that happened. That's, they were Christians, they were doing great, something bad happened and then they just kind of, they went through a, a time of depression. They went through a hard time and they left the faith. And I also know other people that go through a hard time, go through something traumatic and horrible and instead of losing their faith, their faith is built up. I mean, I could name instances in my life and some of the best times before God that I had were in some of the worst moments when uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Couch, died in a motorcycle accident and that time of grieving his death, a time when I was here at New Life and a a shooter came in and, and, and killed people here on our campus and I saw those two little girls die, a time when I had an ex-fiance and she broke up with me and it was just this sad, sad period, this sad period of time in my life where I brought my prayers before God. I would pray prayers like, God, where are you? I would pray prayers. What are you doing? Where the heck are you? I would, I would say these things to God. And I think if the, if the writings of the Old Testament show us anything, they show us that those kind of prayers are okay. I knew a guy, I used to work at uh, a pizza hut back in New Mexico, and I knew this guy that worked as a delivery driver. And I was like, man, I must have been like 17 or 18 at the time, but somehow I was given the position of manager (laughs) over all these people. And there was this guy there that uh, was just a bad dude. He was a really bad dude. He was always had a bad mood. He was always kind of cussing, always just kind of like, yeah, I hate being here. I hate this. I hate that. I don't want to be here. Um, he drove a black bug with all these skulls all over it, <laughs> and just kind of a bad dude. And uh, and he was he actually worked at Pizza Hut part time, and he worked as uh, a bouncer at a strip club 
uh, as another part-time job. And you talk about a bad dude. And uh, I was putting in his name to, to do the pizza delivery thing. And it, I, you put in initials. And his initials were JC. And so I said, like Jesus Christ? And he said, no, I don't believe in him anymore. And he began to tell me a story. And over the course of a year, I heard his story that he used to be a strong Christian. He used to be a youth leader. And uh, actually, it was, it was really cool, really interesting at least, that I, the church that I was going to at the time, he used to be a youth leader at this church serving a, a few years ago. And he was on fire for Christ. He talked about, you know, loving God and reading the Bible. And then he said something happened. He said over, uh, he said he had a bunch of friends in high school graduate. And on the night of their graduation, they were drinking and they, they drove. And all of his friends, he wasn't with them, but they died in a car crash. And he said, and then he said, after that point, I hated coming to church. Because he said he'd come to church and he said, you know, all I thought was everybody around here is fake and they smile all the time. And I'm not smiling all the time. My life, you know, he said, my life is hell. And I, I don't like coming to church because everybody puts on fake smiles. And as we talked, I said, you know, the, stop coming to church is one thing. But, you know, have you ever gone to God with all, you know, with your, with your hurt? And, you know, God still loves you. And he said, no, I don't think God loves me. I, I think you just have to, you know, have to, you have to be nice for God to love you. And I said, no, you know, and we got into this conversation where, where I think the reason why he gave up on faith is because he didn't think God could handle his prayers of hatred, that God could handle prayers and questions like, where are you, God? Where were you when my friends died? That he, in some way, thought, you know, the Christian life is all about nice and putting on a smile and faking it. And that's not at all what it's about. If you read the writings of the Old Testament, like we just did today, I showed you some pretty sick, some pretty messed up verses, you know, some verses that have people praying their hatred. And you can see that, you know, God wants to accept our full emotions. God wants to accept our prayers as we pray them, that we don't have to put on a face before God and pray a nice prayer if we're not feeling nice. We can pray a prayer of asking God, where are you? We could pray a prayer of asking God to help us. We could pray a prayer of asking God to, you know, if we're feeling like someone just wronged us and you I hate that person. God, would you help me? But I hate this person. That prayer is an okay prayer. And so do you see that? That's my question for you. Do you see that you're given permission before God to pray, to truly come to God as you are? Hopefully you've seen that. Hopefully you've seen that in the writings. So let's, let's pray this morning. God, we do want to come before you with who we are. We want to show you our true selves so that you can be the healer, you can be the doctor in our lives. God, we don't want to live with hatred. God, we don't want to live uh, hating people for what they've done. But if that's what we're feeling, God, would you accept that? Would you, would you, can we bring our hate to you, God? Can we bring our sadness to you, God? Can you heal us? Can you make us whole? God, we don't want to hide ourselves from you, but we want to bring our true selves, our true identity, our true feelings to you. And God, we thank you for that permission to do that. We thank you for the fact that we can bring ourselves to you however we are, and you can deal with us. You can make us righteous and holy. So God, we love you and we praise you. We leave here worshiping you with our true identity. And everybody said... Amen.